All right. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we just thank you. I thank you for this time of year. Thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate your coming. Celebrate many things, Lord God. Father, I pray as we come together and as we hear your word, we pray that you would move in our hearts and our minds. Stir that excitement for you. Stir up that desire for you. And I pray you just turn our hearts to you, Lord God. And we give this time to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but um, the world is always looking for a hero. Have you noticed that? Hero stories are very popular, especially today with all the superhero movies and shows and stuff. But the world is always looking for a hero, someone who will come in and rescue and save the day. Isn't that, that makes a great story, right? We like movies that someone comes in and, and can save the day, save people from dire need. People turn to heroes. They like heroes that can represent themselves. We see a lot of heroes now there's, with a lot of diversity because people like to find somebody that can represent them, their need, their story. And I think this is kind of like our human tendency. We like to seek out heroes, people who will uh, save us, people who we could look up to, people who we could uh, go to and, and someone who, who can lead us, someone who can give us hope, especially this time, right? You look around, everything's going on around us, a lot of people are looking for a hero, someone who could come in and save us from all the different conflicts. Well, Christmas really is about that hero, the coming of the hero, the role model, the leader, the one who's going to give the ultimate hope. That's the Christmas story. Christmas is about the story of the eternal Son of God taking on human flesh, born miraculously into this world so that all who will believe in Him will have eternal hope, eternal salvation. Now you think about Christmas time, we see all the decorations, everything's going up. You see what the world is pushing, right? The world pushes a talking snowman. It pushes a red-nosed reindeer. It pushes some mysterious elf that seems to transport itself throughout the house in the middle of the night. I don't know if you all do that. I have my thoughts about that. It pushes... A white bearded man who carries a sack of gifts and goes around delivering gifts. We never did that. But I won't say anything more in case uh, I've had this happen where I think I've popped some kids' uh, thoughts about Santa Claus. And I was like, okay, I, got, I, I don't want to be the one to break the news. So, uh, But you see what the world pushes, yet they'll do all they can to avoid... The greatest story about Christmas. You'll see in this time of year, a lot of cheesy Christmas love story movies and shows that come up, right? But yet they won't, or they'll hesitate, or try to avoid telling the greatest love story, that of God's love shown to us. And this is what Christmas really is about. And people may look at the Christmas story and they think, 
you know, how can you believe in this? How can you believe in this story that the Bible says? It would take faith to believe in something so miraculous, so unbelievable. And if someone was to tell me that, I would say, exactly, precisely. It takes faith to believe in what the Bible is talking about and what we, were, we will be talking about, about the Christmas story. Because there's no hiding the fact that God calls us to live by faith. He calls us to live by faith. In fact, if God did not operate in the miraculous and the unbelievable, you know what? It wouldn't be an act of God. I'll say that again. If God did not operate in the miraculous, in the unbelievable, it wouldn't really be an act of God. Because people will look at it and say, you know what? They'll dismiss it as, well, that's just something that happens. We'll give credit to people, right? We will easily dismiss something that, well, that just happens. But the fact is God operates in the miraculous. He works outside and beyond what is natural to us so that we have no cause to claim credit. So we can no longer just explain it off as something else. God works in the miraculous, and he calls us to live by faith while we're here on earth, trusting him that he is going to fulfill his promise. That's an act of faith. That's our life of faith. But what he also does is that he calls us to live by faith, but he gives us just enough, and sometimes actually more than enough, for us to believe and trust him. Does that make sense? Have you seen that? He calls us to live by faith, but as we live by faith, He gives us enough for us to believe and trust Him. And we see this as examples in the Christmas story. And we're going to take a look at two specific moments, two specific times that leads up to, the, to what we celebrate as Christmas, the birth of Jesus. We're going to take a look at the announcements that was given to Mary and Joseph. And we're going to see their inspiring faith. And we're going to remember that God operates in the miraculous, but he also operates within our context, within our story, within our human experience. So we're going to take a look, and we're going to start off in the book of Luke. We're no longer in Philippians. Can you believe that? It's been a while, right? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke. Luke chapter 1. Now, of the four Gospels, as you're turning to there, each of the Gospels appears, uh, appeals to a specific uh, intended audience with a certain perspective, each of the Gospels. And Matthew and Luke of the four Gospels report on the birth of Jesus. And you may think, well, why is only two of the four Gospels talking about Jesus' birth? That seems to be like a big thing. Well, think of it as like a biography. It's say if there's going to be four writers who's going to speak on somebody, give a biography on a person. You can expect that each of those four writers might present a different perspective of their biography, right? Maybe they'll choose to start off in the birth story. Maybe they'll start off with the perspective of the father, maybe the perspective of the mother. Maybe one biographer won't go back to the history of that. Maybe they'll start on the career of somebody, right, as they're an adult. Or maybe their, their focus of the biography will be on the person and the character of the person and not necessarily a narrative of, from birth, right? What we see in the four Gospels, they each present a different perspective and can speak to a specific audience. Here we see in Luke, Luke chapter 1, he really starts off his letter, his Gospel account, 
is clearly stating his perspective. What is his intention in giving his narrative? So we see in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, we don't know exactly who Theophilus is, but we know that we can sense that Luke is is speaking to generally a a Gentile audience. And he states his intention. He's saying, I'm writing to you to give you an account, a narrative account of what led up to what we do today, the ministry of the gospel. So he's saying, here is why we believe what we believe. This is what took place. This is what leads us to what we do and what we believe today. So Luke lays out his his, uh, intention. And he states that he did his own investigation to get to the truth of the matter. He looked into it. He wanted to make sure he got the truth out. So that you know why we believe what we believe believe. So that was Luke's intention. Now we go back and we're going to pick up at verse 26. We're going to skip some passages and we're going to start up in verse 26. Luke says in verse 26, now in the sixth month of the angel, Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. We'll stop there for a second. So the angel Gabriel appears to Mary in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now Elizabeth is the wife of a priest named Zacharias and a relative of Mary. You'll see that in a later passage. Now Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were of old age. We don't know exactly how old, but they were of of old age. And they were told by Gabriel, this angel, that they would have a son. And we know that the son was, would later become John the Baptist, who we refer to as John the Baptist. And he would be that forerunner to Jesus. He would prepare the people's hearts for the coming Lord, for Jesus and his ministry. Now, if you know the story, we're not going to cover that story, but you know the, the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth it resembles a lot about of Abraham and Sarah. You, can, you guys can picture the, or capture the commonalities. Just like Abraham and Sarah, Zacharias and Elizabeth were of old age. Elizabeth was barren. In other words, she didn't have any children. But yet they were told that she would miraculously have another, or have a child. And that she would have a son. So that's the story. So God sends angel Gabriel to the city of Nazareth to see a young girl named Mary. Now Mary was, was probably no older than a young teenager. Some of us here have daughters probably in close age to Mary was, a young teenager. Now, can you imagine that? Parents, how horrifying would that be? (laughs) Some of you over here are like, I can't imagine that. Right? That sounds horrifying to us that our young teenage daughters would be engaged to be married. But that was cultural at the time. That was in the context of the culture at the time. It was common for a young 
girl, a young lady who was a young teenager, to be engaged to be married at that time. Aren't you glad things have changed? Right? Parents, aren't you glad things have changed? Yes. <laughs> so Mary was engaged to Joseph. And he's, he's, we're told that he's a descendant of King David. And we'll get to the significance of that later. But Luke makes it clearly known that Mary was a virgin at this time, but she was, engaged, she was in the engagement stage of the relationship with Joseph. Okay, so she, has, she was a virgin at the time. They're soon to be married, not yet married. Pick up verse 28. And coming in, being Gabriel... He said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Now Gabriel appears to Mary, and judging by Mary's initial response, there doesn't seem to be anything um, significantly remarkable of his appearing. We don't see a fearful response to Mary. Zacharias, he was doing his temple work, and when Gabriel appeared before him, he was fearful. The angel shouldn't have been there, right? But some, for some reason, we don't know like where Mary was. We don't know if she was indoors or outdoors. We don't get an indication that there was anything remarkable of the appearance of Gabriel. We don't know if he went through a wall or shone brightly or anything like that. We don't see any indication of that. And it's kind of funny, when we think of angels, we usually kind of picture these winged people, right? These women have these great wings. But when you look at Scripture, when these angels appear to people in Scripture, they're not described as these great winged figures. They're they're, they're represented as the appearance of, of men. And I say men because we have, there's no indication, no appearance of any kind of female angel. We don't just see that, we just don't see that in Scripture. So there's nothing seemingly to be remarkable about when Gabriel appears before Mary. But look at what takes Mary off guard. Mary takes, it was, she's taken off guard by the greeting, how he greets her. He says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And Mary's response is she's troubled. She's trying to make sense. What kind of greeting is this? Why is she being referred to as favored one, that God has shown grace upon her? What is it about her? Now, can you imagine if you're a young girl, some of you who are over here, someone comes up, appears to you and says, greeting favored one of the Lord. And you don't know this person. You've never met this person before. You'd be like, who are you? And how do you know me? And why do you know me? That would be a little freaky. You'd be a little troubled by that. Perhaps Mary is thinking those same things. Who are you? Why are you here? I don't even know you. What do you know about me to say such things? What is it about me that's favorable? Verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So she, he, Gabriel expands and explains why he says, greets her this way. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now Gabriel reassures her to not be afraid, for she has found favor with God. 
It seems like words of comfort is exactly what Mary needed to hear because of what he was going to explain. It's a good thing Gabriel starts off with greetings, favorable one. God's grace is on you. And then he says, don't be afraid, right? Hold up. Let me brace you. You have found favor with God. That seems to be exactly what Mary is going to need because what Gabriel is going to announce to her is going to be pretty heavy stuff. Look at what, what Gabriel announces about Mary's upcoming son. She, she shall name him Jesus. In Hebrew, Joshua. The Lord is salvation, or the Lord saves. He will be great. Be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. His reign over the house of Jacob will be forever. He will have an everlasting kingdom. As I said, it's a good thing Gabriel started off with words of encouragement and comfort and braced her like, don't be afraid. Because he just laid down some serious, heavy stuff on a young girl. If any of you can relate to pressure being placed on you. Maybe if you're young, young teenagers, have you ever felt pressure from your parents that they've put on you? Some expectations of what you'll be. If you've experienced that, maybe you can get a glimpse of what Mary just heard. So Mary, don't be afraid. Let me comfort you. But you're going to have a son. And this son is going to be called the Son of the Most High. He's going to be great. Now Mary would understand the implications of what Gabriel is announcing. He didn't just tell her she was going to have a son, but he revealed profound implications of who her son was going to be. Being Jewish, she would immediately understand the description of what Gabriel was announcing. Her son would be the son of promise, the Messiah, the one that her people was waiting for, that scripture was prophesying about. The king who would deliver God's people from the nations would usher in God's kingdom, the one who would be sitting on the throne of David. The Messiah would come from the line of King David. And that's why it's significant that it's described that Joseph was from the line of David. So you can imagine Mary hearing this news and she's just minding her own business. And Gabriel comes and appears and lays this heavy burden on Mary. Here's what Mary says in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm still a virgin? Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. So here we see Mary naturally wonders, how can this be? And Luke explains how this is going to be. 
He makes it very clear to Mary, this is going to be a miraculous thing. It's not a natural thing. Notice what he says. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then he parallels that with the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That word overshadow, if you look at the uses of the New Testament of that word, it's used in reference back into the transfiguration. When it's mentioned in the New Testament, it describes that moment of transfiguration when Jesus and his disciples, the three disciples, were up on the mountain and the clouds overshadow them. The description of God's holy presence overcoming and overwhelming them. And Gabriel announces, don't worry. You'll conceive a son, but it's not going to be natural means. The power of the Most High, the Holy Spirit, will overshadow you, will come upon you. What an amazing experience that would be. We don't know when that happened specifically. We don't have an account of when that happened. But we're told because of her conception is a work of God, not a natural cause. What else do we hear about who her son is going to be? Her son, the child, is going to be called the Holy Child and called the Son of God. I imagine this would be overwhelming for Mary to digest, wouldn't you think? That you're told that the Messiah, the Son of God, you're going to conceive the coming Messiah? Can you imagine what your reaction would be? What would your response be? Would you want proof? Can you give me a sign, right? While Mary doesn't ask for a sign, what does Gabriel reveal? He reveals another miracle. What does he say? Elizabeth your relative, is going to have a child. And this can only be of God because she was barren. She didn't have children. She was of age, an older age. Yet she will be with child. And in case Mary doubted the possibility, he says at this moment, Elizabeth is already six months into her pregnancy. Can you see how God's timing is perfect and purposeful for a reason? Notice, look at the situation. The timing of the pregnancies of Elizabeth and Mary confirms the the miraculous promise both were given. We didn't cover the passage, but you read it before. Elizabeth was told she was going to have a child. And Elizabeth's pregnancy is confirmed by Mary's future pregnancy. If you read on in verse 39 to 45, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, her pregnancy is confirmed. And then Mary's future pregnancy is affirmed by Elizabeth's pregnancy. Afterwards, when Gabriel appears before Mary, she goes to visit Elizabeth. And that confirms herself. So it's interesting how God's timing is perfect. How he affirms both miraculous works. Verse 38, and Mary said, check out Mary's response. Behold the bondslave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Look at Mary's humble heart. Upon hearing this news, she doesn't consider herself a celebrity, much like a lot of people do today. She doesn't take the occasion of pride. But what's her response? She says, 
Behold the bond slave of the Lord. I am God's servant. Let it be done according to what you're saying to me. Mary would understand the implications. If she was found pregnant before being fully married, she could be divorced. That would not look good, shall we say lightly. But yet Mary was able to say, let it be done. Whatever the Lord, I am the Lord's servant. I love how Gabriel says, with the Lord, nothing is impossible. Now what about Joseph? There's another flip story about Joseph. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew records, Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now we're not told at what point Joseph heard about Mary's pregnancy. We're just told, again, very clearly, her pregnancy was during the engagement. The conception was during the engagement before they were together intimately. And Matthew makes a point clear, as we saw in Luke, she was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. Miraculous. Nothing natural. And in Luke, we see, we saw in Luke, Mary's humility, right? Her obedience and faith. Here we, see, we learn more about Joseph and his perspective. Joseph is described as a righteous man, probably meaning that he was law-abiding, a man of character or virtue. And this is supported by the initial response to Mary's pregnancy that we see in this passage. He didn't want to make an example of Mary. He could have made this a public deal. He could have shamed Mary. But instead he said, let me release her, divorce her secretly as to not make it a public spectacle. It would have been completely lawful for him to divorce her, to end the engagement. Verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting, God chose to reveal his plan to Joseph a little bit differently than Mary. We're not told specifically this is Gabriel. We can assume it is. But we're told an angel Lord appears to him, but this time he appears to him in a dream. Appears to Joseph in a dream. It's kind of crazy, and I don't know if there's a connection with Joseph's and dreams. I don't know if Joseph's Joseph's here. I don't know if you have crazy dreams or not. Or if there's other Josephs in here, you have God speaks to you in dreams. I don't know. Maybe there's something about the name Joseph. But here, God chooses to reveal to him in a dream. And it's acknowledged that son of David, the angel tells him, to not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So here's what's revealed to Joseph in his dream. Mary's pregnancy is going to be of the Holy Spirit, similar to what was revealed to Mary. She will have a son. Now remember, we kind of take this for granted, but this was before ultrasounds, right? Nowadays, into the pregnancy, early into the pregnancy, we could find out whether we're going to have a son or a daughter. Right? I remember that day when we found out. Well, actually, wait, I, we, we chose not to find out, right? Oh, my goodness, now I can't remember. The first time, I think we chose not to find out. Right now, Jamie's shaking her head like, Mike, how can you forget this? Oh, you're shaking your head right now, aren't you? <laughs> but nowadays, we can find out whether we're having a son or a daughter. But here, with Mary and Joseph, they're revealed, you will have a son. And you will call his name Jesus. Both are mentioned that, with both accounts. You will name him Jesus. And this time, what does he say? He will save his people from their sins. And he quotes Isaiah 7.14, the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah Hear the message to Joseph. Jesus will be the promised Savior. Now put yourself in Joseph's shoes. I don't know about you. Do you have vivid dreams? Do you remember what you dreamt last night? I don't have very vivid dreams. Two minutes after waking up, I probably have forgotten all that I've dreamt about. I could barely tell you on account of hands how many dreams, different dreams I've had in my life. So I don't make much of my dreams. But this one, Joseph could not dismiss. This is a remarkable dream that Joseph has. And Joseph, remember, he also knows the cultural consequences of his dilemma, his situation. What do I do? In his mind, prior to this dream, he thought, look, I'm not going to make a deal of this publicly. I'm just going to let her go. But he was affirmed, Joseph, don't do this. He understands a culture. He could have easily dismissed her. But verse 24, And Joseph woke up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph shows his character. He showed his faith and trust in the Lord. He obeyed and took Mary as his wife. And he, rem- and he and Mary, and they got married even, Mary remained a virgin until Jesus was born. And they instructed, as instructed, they named him Jesus. The grandest miracle story. What a miraculous story. But when you look at it, it carried out through the faith of simple people. I don't know if there's anything really remarkable about Joseph and Mary other than what we see, how they responded to this announcement. The Lord used humble circumstances to carry out this miraculous plan through these common individuals. That's the Christmas story. You think about that. What should we take away? What should we think about as we ponder how this came about? Here's some things to think about. First off, we've got to remember Jesus, right? 
He's central to these announcements that our Savior King has come. We celebrate the Savior King. You look at the account of Mary. She was told the coming King, the coming Messiah will come through you. This, you will conceive and have this Messiah come. And yet here we also see Joseph, his message, the Savior, the Savior of the world, the Savior of sins will come through you. It's interesting to note that Luke, written to a Gentile audience, presents Jesus as the coming Messiah. And yet Matthew, who's typically understood as a written to a more Gentile perspective, or I'm sorry, a more Jewish perspective, presents Jesus as the coming Savior. So you have the coming Messiah and the coming Savior. But this will be the one who will come and save people from our sins. He will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. See, in a world in our time where we're all looking for heroes, we watch hero stories and we read hero stories. We're looking for role models. We're looking for a person who will bring in hope. What we need to prepare us is what we celebrate next week and we celebrate for Christmas is we are celebrating that one has come. The one that we look for to give us hope, eternal hope, the one who will save us, has come. That's the one we look for. He doesn't wear a cape, a red cape. Hollywood will not portray him as that hero, but he came. But I love how God brought this about. The second thing I want us to consider is the role of faith and trust as evidenced by Joseph and Mary. It's interesting how the miraculous by God is often hidden in the subtleties of life. God's miraculous work is often done in the very subtle, common things of life. He has a way of using common, we- common means to do extraordinary things. And I think he does this. He used common means to do an incredible work in us so that we can relate to a mighty God but also have no cause for us to boast, no cause for us to have credit for ourselves. It can only be of God. It's only of God that he would use two common people to reveal a miraculous thing and that it would be an act of faith to carry out and believe what God was going to do. Truly, nothing is impossible with God. And we need this reminder. When we look at the story, we see we elevate Christ, the coming Messiah, the coming King. And we can also relate to Joseph and Mary's experience. We need this reminder that nothing is impossible with God. God's miraculous work happens in our everyday life. We base so much on what we perceive as possible By living by faith, we prepare ourselves for God being at work. We need to live by faith. We need to trust. When we look at the Christmas story, we can't look and say, well, how probable is that? I don't know if I can believe that. It's a stretch. It's a stretch because we have to rely on God. We trust that God did a miraculous work so that none of us can boast. Mary and Joseph could not boast. 
they could not claim that it was them. It wasn't a sense of pride. We, he, does, he works in this very humble means so that it can be known the hero of the story truly is God. The hero, the savior, the role model, the leader has come. And as we approach Christmas time, and we get caught up in the festivities of things, right? We're doing white elephant gifts. We do gift exchange. We get caught up in the decorations, all those things. And there's some joy we can have in that. But as we lead into Christmas, I want us to, to consider the two things. One, obviously, the center of the meaning of Christmas and the center of the Christmas story is that our hero, our Savior, has come. We don't need to look at anybody else in the world to be that hero, that model. As we saw in Philippians, Jesus is our ultimate role model. He is the center of the Christmas story that we can look to. He is our eternal hope. And the second thing that we can always remember, and we see this in the example of Mary and Joseph, their humble obedience, their humble faith, that we, as we live by faith, have a humble faith. I say, God, you are a worker of the impossible. I truly believe Joseph and Mary's faith sets that example for us. To say, God, may I have such a faith and trust in you that you will fulfill your promises, but also, Lord, that I can respond like Mary and Joseph say, Lord, let it be done through me. Let it be done through me. I will trust in you. I will have such faith because you come through. As we go into Christmas, as we look at, we'll look at next week the Christmas story. We get caught up in things. Well, I hope we have a festive week or two weeks or so. Let's remember those two things. The hero has come. And we celebrate that coming of the hero. And we, may we never lose the sense of living by faith and trust in him. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you are the hero of the story. You are the Savior, the coming King. You are the one we celebrate. And Lord, we thank you that you operate in very humble means in our lives, Lord God. You work the miraculous in our life. There's things that you do in our life that we can't explain other than it must be of God. Encourage us, Lord. Help us to continue to live by faith and trust in you. We give you praise, Lord, and we celebrate you in Jesus' name. Amen.